Well, hello, Harvest Community Church. We're back. Hopefully we're all together, even though we're not all together. We're in our living rooms, maybe we're in our kitchens. Um, But here we are to worship God together again in the age of quarantining the healthy. Um, That's not an editorial comment, it's just a reality. My hair keeps getting uh, longer and there's absolutely nothing I can do about it. If you think I'm going to cut it, I'm not. It would be just disastrous. So let's get together and worship God today like we do every week. Open up your Bibles, if you will, to Mark chapter 9, verse 30 to 37. Acts, excuse me, Mark chapter 9, verse 30 to 37. I want to set the scene a little bit here. Um, By the way, I've noticed, because for the first time in my life, just about every week, I have to, when I hear the sermon uh, at home with the other people in my family, I have to listen to myself uh, and watch myself, which is even more embarrassing. And um, I try to pretend it's not me and listen closely. But one thing I noticed, (laughs) I was watching me last week and I thought, can that guy not stand still? And of course, my family laughed at me, um, as the people in the tech booth just laughed, though you couldn't hear that. And uh, they said, we, we've tried to tell you that for years, so I'm going to try to stand stiller. I hope that doesn't uh, distract you, but look, I already can't do it. Look at me. I'm like, okay, I'm going to try not to distract you by moving too much. This could be impossible, and I'll probably forget within five seconds. Okay, so Mark chapter 9, there's no crowds in this one. A lot of the scenes in Mark, Jesus has a lot of people, has a full house of people in it with him, or there's a lot of people wandering around, but uh, big crowds of people, people shoving in to, to, to get healing, and, and, and literally, literally at times thousands of people. But now there's not those big crowds, there's just his closest followers. And when we say his close followers, what are we talking about? I think... If you look at all the paintings and watch all the TV shows, you might think we're just talking about a dozen guys, right? Just the uh, uh, apostles. If you've been watching that TV show, The Chosen, um, about the life of Jesus, which is interesting, um, you might think it's just 12 guys and, and one woman who seems to boss them around. It's, if you've seen that show, you've seen it, it's kind of like the Smurfs. They're all dudes with one woman. She's the Smurfette. She's the Apostolette, I guess, and she's the bossy one. But um, that is not accurate, that TV show. I'm not saying it's bad, but it's, uh, I go a little crazy watching Bible shows because of the inaccuracies, because I think it's important we understand what really happened in the Bible so we have a good picture of what God's trying to tell us. So when he had followers, he didn't just have the 12. He had the 12 plus a bunch of other disciples. Uh, and they were men and women, normally wealthy women, as we'll see. Um, so, so it's a band of people traveling, and, and so at any given point, dozens of them could be there when he's just with his closest people. For example, in Acts chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, after Judas had flamed out and Jesus died and rose and the apostles were, were getting together to do ministry without Jesus in the flesh, they said, there's only 11 of us. The scripture says there should, we had to replace Judas. And so then, listen to what Peter says in Acts 1. He says, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out 
in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So they're actually going to replace the apostle. And it's had to be an eyewitness of Jesus. That's why there's no apostles today. Um, and, but they said one of these men. There were men who were with them from the time of John's baptism. Uh, it doesn't mean every one of them spent every night together, but in general, they, there was a group of people that went along. Um, in this time in Acts, when the church is young, there's about 120 people there. You can imagine 120 to 150 of these people were always around, some of them, right? And, and like I said, not just men, there were wealthy women, like Mary Magdalene. That's another thing that show gets wrong. There's no reason to think she was a impoverished uh, hooker before she was saved. She might have been a hooker. I don't know. Jesus loves them. Hooker means um, prostitute uh, for those not raised in the 70s. And, 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 but she was wealthy. And she actually, a lot of the women who were able, because of their wealth, to travel with Jesus and the boys, um, they would uh, actually pay the way. They'd pay for them as they traveled around. So all that to say this, unless the Bible specifies that it's only the 12 or a smaller set, like Peter, James, and John, um, you have to imagine in your mind when it says he's with his disciples, he's with more than 12 and could be 24, could be 36, could be 40, could be 50. We don't know, actually. Um, Outside of his close followers, you had a a whole group of people. You had curious, wanted to see what's going on because he always seems to bring a spectacle with him. You had the skeptical, those who think maybe he's true but probably not. You had the seekers who saying, hey, I'm open to learn. And then you, of course, had his enemies. Um, So in Mark 9, 30 to 37, in our text, we're just, you can have to imagine Jesus with, with people close to him. Probably not just the 12. Um, don't know how many, but probably more than that. Okay, let's jump in with all that to set the scene. Mark 9, uh, 30 to 37. And they went on from there and they passed through Galilee. And he didn't want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days, he will rise. This seems to be a a teaching he wants especially aimed at his followers. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him, okay? (laughs) They didn't want to ask him, what do you you mean you're going to die and rise? Um, So... uh, for our, for our map, let's start taking some notes. In the Gospel of Mark, we have a familiar theme. The Christ must suffer and no one sees it coming. Hope you, if you've been going with us through Mark for the last few months, you, you've seen this. If not, I'll tell you it's there. If you read through the Gospel of Mark, and in fact all the Gospels, one of the main themes of the Gospels is that the Christ, the Messiah, must suffer and nobody sees it coming. I mean, nobody. Uh, it was said in the prophets, but people didn't see it. They expected the Messiah to be a great king and to rule, not to, to become the weakest, to, to get, become persecuted, to be framed and then executed. That, that was not in anyone's mind. And as Jesus taught it live to his own people, they didn't get it. Now, you might say, why didn't they understand? I can only say, I don't know. We can only guess. You know, when your worldview is set in a certain direction... All the data comes to either prove what you already believe or you mold it to, to what you already believe, which is why you got to 
be careful with all just worldly thought and political thought and any thought. You've got to actually um, be open to truth, and the truth comes from God, and he'll always rock your world a little bit. But um, at this point, they didn't see it coming. Here, I want to show you a text that's interesting because it shows you that Jesus traveled with men and women and, and that they all didn't see this coming. Remember at the resurrection when uh, the stone was rolled away and the women who were the first to come looking for Jesus, all the Marys, <laughs> Mary Magdalene, Mary, all these Marys, I don't remember um, who they were, but all these Marys, um, there's just a lot of Marys. It's a very popular name back then. Um, they came to see Jesus and the stone was rolled away and instead of seeing Jesus, they saw an empty tomb and some angels. Remember what the angel said to them? No? Well, I'm going to show you. It should pop up on the screen about now, Luke 24, 6 and 7. The angel said, he is not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? Uh, Do you remember that? The ladies, so he obviously told the ladies because they were in his inner circle and they didn't catch it. It just went right over their head. Right over their head. I told you I was going to die. I told you I was going to rise. Remember how he told you that? Yeah, he did, but we, we had no idea what he was talking about. Well, it was pretty simple. He's going to die. He's going to rise. You know, I guess it's easy to say I told you so if you're an angel after the fact, right? It's like being Alex Trebek. Oh, sorry, you're wrong, but he's got the answer right, right there. But in any case, in our text, in Mark, he tells them, and it said, interestingly, it said, They did not understand the saying, but they were afraid to ask. Why would they be afraid to ask? Jesus, could we go back and review you're dying again? I don't know why. My guess is the last time we know of someone asking, it was Peter. And he said, Lord, far be it from you to die. And what did Jesus say to him? You're Satan. Who wants Jesus to call them Satan? Nobody. Remember, he said, get ye behind me, Satan. So in any case, they're feeling kind of shy. Let's not mess with him when he says these weird things. Let's just let this pass. And maybe he'll talk about... Um, some sort of parable of of growing seeds or something that we can uh, ask him about. So, in any case, verse 33. And then they came to Capernaum. Capernaum comes up all the time, geographical note. It's in the north part of the Galilee. It's Peter's hometown. They probably many times slept in Peter's house. I know if you're watching the movie The Chosen, you always think they're just having a camping trip. They did sleep outside, no doubt, many times, but they often slept in houses because that's the hospitable way. Um... And so this is probably Peter's hometown. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Now, this was a discussion we haven't seen. It's not in the scripture. Um, But we're going to find out right now. It says, but they kept silent. They kept silent. For for on the way, they argued about who was the greatest. Right? Life's embarrassing moments, right? I mean... Um, they were, we were fighting over which one of us was the most awesome. They don't want to say that to Jesus. They know somehow that's probably not going to get an attaboy from the boss. He's not going to go, hey, good for you. Go, way to go. Keep fighting over who's the goat here and uh, who's the greatest of all time. And, um, uh, you know, and, but it's a natural argument. I think I would, I would have it pass through my mind if I was any of them. I mean, first the twelve probably thought, well, we're obviously better than the rest of you because he chose us from you to be better than the rest of you. But then you got Peter, James, and John who keep getting singled out for special treatment. And um, so they're probably thinking, well, we're the best of the best. And 
And then Peter probably argued, and I'm the best of the best. He's clearly the closest to me. And John was probably, no, I'm the one he loves the most. And he never said to me, you're Satan, get behind me. And, and so they're fighting. They're actually arguing and they're probably annoying one another. And the boss kind of catches them and goes, excuse me, what were you talking about just there? They're like, nothing. <laughs> they don't, they kept silent and said, we weren't talking about anything. Nothing, nothing. But this becomes a teachable moment for Jesus. Um, They're thinking about greatness, right? They're thinking about greatness. He's the Messiah. They're they're not figuring, how could they, and I'm not condemning the apostles, partly because when I die and go to heaven, I'll meet them, and they'll yell at me and say, oh, look who's so smart, you know. But the other (laughs) reason is really, how could they have guessed he was going to die, raise, and leave them, that that was the plan? Now, it seems normal to us because we live after the fact but before the fact who would have imagined that he was going to be gone he's messiah no matter what he's saying about this dying and raising stuff one thing we know this story ends with him being on the throne ruling the world and since we're his closest men we got to figure out which one of us is going to be second in command third in command it's a very natural argument and jesus knows they're having it and so He answers it in verse 35 to 37. So let's finish reading our text for today. Verse 35, he he sat down and he called the 12. So so out of the the people traveling with him, he calls out the 12. So, you know, there could have been 40 people there, 30 people there. And he says, you 12 come with me. So the rest are out there and they say, we're just going to keep roasted marshmallows or whatever they were doing. And (laughs) the 12 come over. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, oh, by the way, when he called the 12, there's no reason to think they're in a private setting. He called them over. It doesn't mean, I mean, I don't know what it looked like, but there's no reason to think the others weren't listening in. But in any case, he's talking to the 12 who obviously think they're the greatest. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all. And servant of all. You want to be first? Be last. Right? You want to say you're the greatest of all time? Six Super Bowl rings, Tom Brady. Um, we'll show you. You can go play for the Buccaneers. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, <laughs> there's worse teams than the Buccaneers. He, I guess with Tom Brady, if he wanted to act like Jesus with his six Super Bowl rings, he should have played for the Browns. <laughs> now that's going to the least of all. But in any case, he, he said, if anyone would be first, he must be last. He must be the servant. And then he took a child. Now where he got this child, obviously some of the people traveling with him, brought the kids and uh we don't he and he he sticks them says look at this kid boom kids like yeah look at me and so there's the kid right there he takes him and he puts him right in the middle but then he does something else he takes a kid in his arms so he puts a kid there says you see him yeah watch this and he picks him up or holds him or something like that um and he said to them whoever receives one such child in my name receives me Whoever receives one such child. Now, don't get this mistaken with the other time when he said, let the children come unto me. This is not that text. He's saying something similar, but it's different. He's saying, you see this child? Yeah, watch this. This is the one I'm going to serve. And then he says this, and if, if you will receive a child in my name, guess who you receive? Me. And watch what he goes next. Whoever receives me doesn't receive me, but him who sent me. So he's saying, if you receive 
a child, you receive me. And if you receive me, you receive God. Do you see the pathway to heaven? And, and, and they think the pathway to the heaven is greatness. He says, no. Now, Jesus presenting the child gives me an opportunity to sidetrack a bit. And so, warning, I'm going to sidetrack us a bit. It's a similar subject, but um, I think an important subject that we as Christians need to pay more attention to because I think it's a blind spot for us. And I'd like to get at it by kind of comparing the way we would look at that moment with the way the people then would look at that moment. Um, and, and then all the time to lead us right back to the text so we can see how they look at it and then see what Jesus is meaning. Okay, so in the first century, they, just to compare with us, they would value in the Middle East, they would value bearing children much more than the modern man. They valued bearing, and I know there's some people say, well, I wish, I want to have a child, and it's very important to me. I'm not saying you don't want to have a child or that having that your children aren't important to you. I'm not saying that. I am saying that in the first century, they valued bearing children more than modern man. But when the children got there, they gave them far less social importance than we do. It's an odd irony. They, They wanted lots of children, but when they got there, the children were very much last on the social pecking order. They weren't that important. In the first century, why did they want to have children? Because they saw children as the goal of life. They improved your, your, your family status, your family strength. They were your legacy. They were your name carried on in the earth. Family survival depended on you having children. Duh. If you don't have children, your family becomes extinct. The more children you have, the more you can do in the earth, the more wealth you can produce in the earth, and the greater your name becomes in the earth. And when you're gone, you live on because of your family. Children were the building blocks to important. To important. To importance. That's how you did it. That's how it was viewed. Now, I'm telling you, this is their view. I'm not saying it was necessarily... Right? There's, there's some really good stuff in there, but they're not completely right. Just like there's good stuff in the way we do children, and there's bad too. But the way they viewed it is they wanted lots of children. Children were a blessing from the Lord. Children were a gift from the Lord. And by the way, that's in the Bible, so that's still true today. Blessed is the man who has lots of them, the Bible says. If that's in the Bible, it was true then, it's still true today. But they viewed them as valuable as they grew up. Right? <laughs> They, they hurried them up, hurry up and grow up. They gave them responsibilities as young as possible. They mentored them and apprenticed them as young as possible. They would often marry them off and get them started as young as possible unless they had some other plan or need for them. And sometimes you could be a selfish parent. But they, they, they move them forward because the child's value becomes when it becomes an adult. So before they're adults, they're not that important. Now, modern man, I think if you observe our culture, we reverse this. And when I say our culture, it's, it, it, it's the color of the grain of the wood. You know, it's, it's, it's dyed into the wool. We don't notice this. I don't think we think it out loud. It's just what we breathe in as what's normal. And I think that's why we have to examine it and see it's normal, but is it biblical? Now, modern man kind of reverses this. We don't want children, but we give them great social standing 
right? Now, you might say, wait a minute, and I know some people are heartbroken because they want children and have trouble having them. They, uh, well, first I got to get a spouse, and then I have to have the baby. I am not saying there in, there's no individuals who want children. I'm saying we as a culture do not want children, right? And, and this is probably one of the easiest things to prove in history. Uh, never has man not wanted children more, and this has become a worldwide event. It, it, the Industrial Revolution is probably in the West the, uh, the, the, that which, which crushed our desire for children, and, and in the East, communism uh, crushed. And, and a little explanation, not much, but Industrial Revolution brought the man out of the house. So work became out of the house, and, and, and therefore he removed him from the children's lives in large part, but also the children no longer had to help dad with the work, and they were not as necessary, and his identity wasn't as necessary with his family because he's out making money. And then feminism came along and drove the women out too. They said, you get out too. And so their family becomes less important. And it is undeniable that Western culture, the family is, is almost non-existent. You have to recreate it. You have to have stupid shows like Friends where you have idiots who have no families who call themselves a family and they all sleep with each other in lewd ways and still they're happy, which is not true. Or you have to have stupid shows like Modern Family to show that there's no really such thing as a family. You could have a man and a cat and that's a family. Feminism and the Industrial Revolution have killed the family and we don't value children. Uh, I mean their existence, by the way. I don't mean once they're there. There's a value, but before that, we just don't want them. You might say, well, I do. I'm not going to say you don't, but I will say you're probably more of a victim of this way of thinking than you think you are. Why? Well, first, let's look at it. Modern man seeks to limit the existence of children. There's no question about this. There are 50 million, just I'm going to keep shouting it, 50 million abortions worldwide a year. You know, we used to only talk about the American statistics, but now we got the world statistics. 50 million a year, 50 million a year. The number one killer of mankind without even a close second is not, it's not war, it's not cancer, it's not heart disease, it's not even old age, it's abortion. It's abortion. Well, I should say the number one murderer. I mean, eventually everybody dies. But the, the thing that cuts life short the most, that's how I'll say it, is abortion. 50 million. That shows you that modern man, oh, oh, by the way, I left off communism. Sorry, this, probably many of you don't care, but you, you also said communism limits uh, our desire for children. So for those who are thinking about that, that let me fi- fix that, and then I'm not going to talk about communism. Um, communism says there is no family. Everybody is a, a, a member of the state, and their value is their value to the state. And so communist regimes... Well, first, they love abortion. Um, They're in love with abortion. But also, they will separate families. They don't consider family mattering. Every individual is a unit of utilitarian unit that adds value or doesn't add value to the state. And and as you can see, every communist nation has destroyed the family. In China, one child only, many zero children, right? So (laughs) the Industrial Revolution, where we're free, communism, where we're slaves, either way, we're killing the family and we don't want kids. So after abortion, there's an extensive use of birth control. And you might say, wow, did he say that? Aren't we Protestants? We are Protestants, and I'm not saying birth control is a sin necessarily, but what I am saying is 
there's this, this viewpoint, and, and, and we're born with it. I grew up thinking this was right, that, the, 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 that children should, be, should come according to my plan. And I have the ability to make that plan to a large extent by how I use birth control. I'm the one who chooses how many I want. And then if I get married, I negotiate with that person. And that's extensive. Also, in our, in our country specifically, in the West in general, and, and in the East now too, this has become the way in South Korea, in uh, Japan, in China, and even Africa. We put education, career, and quality of life before having kids. You say, well, I don't. You don't. How come you waited until you're 28 to get married? Oh, well, you got to get a college education first. Why? Well, because you do. Because you got to get your career started. Why? You see, I'm not challenging you or saying you're wrong. I'm saying this is how our society is. We do not value the existence of children. If you value the existence of children, you think, I need to be a grown-up as soon as my, I can be and working hard as soon as I can be so when my body's and the body of my spouse is able to produce children, that we can begin doing it, because that's what we want, children. But if you say, no, I'm going to kind of enjoy my life, you know, go to college, and then maybe take a couple of years and travel, then get married, and start, how about, I'm starting my career, and then, you know, a couple of years to pay for the house, and a couple of years for this, and then we're going to have a boy and a girl, hopefully, and that'll be it. You don't really want children. You want two children, (laughs) and you want them when you want them, and they're not taking priority over your career. Now, I'm not saying you're thinking of this consciously. If someone said, you can only have one or the other, your child or your career, I think most people in America would say career, but hopefully most Christians would say a child, but the priority is seen by our actions. Christians aren't that different. This is why I tell Christians all the time, raise your children to believe you're going to be a husband or you're going to be a wife, most likely. Unless God has another plan, and that's okay. He will most likely give you children. If he doesn't, that's okay. He has another plan. You're still in his plan. And you're most likely live your life raising and supporting a family. That's why you exist. That's what you do. If you say that in modern world, someone yells, no, but first, you know, I can't stand watching television anymore because every woman is portrayed as a superhero or, gosh, if you watch a British show, every woman you see is a detective. None of them are, mo- their mom's on the side. They see their mom, their kids two seconds a night, you know, and, and somehow the kids come out kind of okay, but they hate their dad. I don't know why that is. The idea that you would say women should have babies. Oh, oppression. Well, this, this shows hatred of having children. Children... Or seen as a financial burden. How many can we afford? Listen, having lived in the lower middle class in my life, or even the lower class, I don't know what you'd call it, divorce has a way of giving you a couple of families. So I had middle class, I had lower, and then, and then they, there's all sorts of great countries, so the lower class became middle class, and then, it, forget it. My point is this. It doesn't matter how many kids you have. You'll find a way to feed them, especially if you're in America, if we don't kill our economy through this pandemic. Strangely, though, even though we... Now, this is kind of a positive, kind of overdone. Even though we devalue children's existence, once we get here, they get here, we give them social importance that's 
that's beyond what they earn. <laughs> I mean, and this is kind of why I'm telling you this. When Jesus puts a kid in the middle of them and says, says receive the child, that wouldn't work with us as much, right? With us, you'd have to put a pedophile there. Oh, did he say that? I know. You'd have to put someone there who has no social power. You'd have to put a, a um, I don't know, some kind of a criminal there. Because when we see a kid, we go, oh yeah, the right answer is we do it for the children. <laughs> right? It wouldn't make, you see, with the way we give them a lot of importance, importance they don't even have to earn. We ask children their opinions on everything. We have a little kid from, from Viking land somewhere named Greta going around telling everyone, I'm ashamed of you for the way you treat the climate. Look, you're 13, kid. I don't give a dang what you think. You're 13. You don't know nothing. <laughs> Go home. Right? <laughs> you're a kid. Listen to the children. Children need to shut up. When I was... <laughs> now, I'm not saying this generation... This has been going on for a while in America. I remember when I was a teenager. Um, no wonder we rebelled against our parents. Listen to the music we, they let us listen to. You know, you had the who said, um, <laughs> hope I die before I get old. You know, because them old people are stupid. And by then, old was 30. We, give, we care about their opinions. We always have to have a discussion. Let's talk about why you shouldn't hit your sister. Yeah, because let's think about that. Oh, shut up. Kid, you hit your sister. I'm going to make more pain happen to you. You say, that's brutal. That's the way our culture thinks. I don't think it's brutal. You think it's brutal. I don't think it's brutal. <laughs> we give them choices. You know, I see, I see these poor young adults who have kids who have been raised by the modern mindset. They're like, would you like to have the chicken nuggets and the fries and the apples or would you like the burger and the, you know, and when they get home, it's, what do you want for dinner, honey? Look, you're talking to a four-year-old, <laughs> right? It's a, you don't get a choice, you're four. <laughs> In the great scheme of things, you don't realize it but the fact that you live in an age where we don't have to scramble just to get some calories into our bodies, you need to learn. Someone's got to teach you to appreciate the fact you got food. I don't care what kind of... you. I don't like chicken nuggets. You're eating chicken nuggets. You know, you may call me a Neanderthal, but I think we've gone too far. Kids are... We tell our kids they're awesome even when they stink. Uh, each one expects his own room, and then they're scared. Why do you think kids are scared all the time? Do you know, realize for thousands and thousands of years, human beings slept in communal rooms with their whole family? Do you, <laughs> you know, obviously the parents had to get away sometime or there wouldn't be kids, but do you realize how many night frets would go away if when the sun went down, all the kids went to bed? No, I gotta get my own room. If you don't have your own room, it's, it's a sign your parents aren't making enough, right? Um, no one has to prove their social importance by working or is having responsibility. Should we really make him work? He has to go work on his, his ballet, piano, and soccer. Give him some chores, <laughs> you know? Um, uh, a responsibility, he can have that when he's 30, dear. Now, don't get married now. You're still in college. You should be going to Florida and having hedonistic relations with everything that you can and getting as drunk as an idiot because it's normal. No, forget responsibility. We obsess over their autonomy, their individual expression. <laughs> uh, my, what I'm trying to say is our culture encourages us to be very 
self-indulgent and autonomous so that when you create a child, he has no obligation or duty to his parents or his brothers and sisters necessarily. Why should I help him? (laughs) Because you've taught him what your culture has taught him. You're the most important thing. You fulfill your dreams. You do this. So it's interesting society we have. We, we, we seem to value the human as the baby, the child, is very important. Put him in a car seat. Make sure he gets all his choices. But we don't spend any time with them. <laughs> and we don't really want him to be here in the first place. <laughs> we tell them, unlike the first century, said, hurry up and grow up so you're valuable, which I think is a little off. They said... No, you don't need to grow up. You're only 17. Who could expect you to cut the grass? And when they do, they live for themselves, not for their families. You know, it's not all bad. We do recognize kids as being people too. Anyway, that was my swerving off. I'm not giving you strong answers. I'm raising questions. I'm going to stop raising questions on that now. Let's swerve back into our, our focus for today. In Jesus' day, people wanted a lot of kids, but they gave them zero social importance. So if he put a kid in front of you when you're trying to be great, they're like, what's that thing for? That's my kid. I like him. I love him. He's awesome. Kid, go collect, get firewood or something. But if you wanted to be great, you didn't do it by paying attention to kids. So why is Jesus presenting a kid to them? Next for our notes. Both now and in the past, children are not seen as the most influential people in society. Powerful people don't aim to spend time with children. Even though we make a big deal of children and uh, once they get here and we talk about how important they are, we don't plug them into to family well and we don't plug them into a sense of duty uh, or responsibility to their greater culture. And so they're not the means to getting importance. That's the same then as now, really. Look about it in the church. This is the religious world, right? Twelve apostles and Jesus in the church. Who gets the most attention? Me! <laughs> the guy who preaches gets the most attention. And if you want to be powerful in the church, go to seminary and become a preacher, right? The, the, who, who is it? Okay, let's take me out of the equation and, and look at somebody else. Look at Charles Stanley's church or Andy Stanley. If you're older, Charles Stanley. If you're younger, Andy Stanley. Two of the most well-known popular preachers in the country, maybe even the world, who teaches their Sunday school? I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, we'll get another Sunday. We, you, you see what I'm saying? That's not the most famous, even with us. The, the way to power is not teaching Sunday school. You know, when we started a daycare ministry, and one I'm very proud of here, we have a terrific daycare ministry, and it, hopefully we'll be opening up again as soon as we can to help out those families who, who need to have care so they can make some money so the kids that they have can eat. Um, but in any case, um, <laughs> there are people who said, well, what does daycare have to do with church? I'm not going to give any names, but why would a church care about daycare? <laughs> That's, or, or worse, some said, you guys are just in it for the money, which it's a lot of work <laughs> to run a daycare and manage it and do it as good as we do it. It's a very good, well done, everything done well. Um, I'm starting to sound like Trump. It's terrific. It's the best daycare ever. It's great. They do a great job back there. Those people are great. They're awesome. It's the best there ever was. But in any case, <laughs> I actually think it is great. Um, people say, you need to do it for the money. Well, what's daycare have to do with being a church? Do you see the thinking there? 
That's not the way you become a great church, doing daycare. (laughs) At this moment, the apostles are not thinking of the kids. You know what they're thinking of? Armies. You know what they're thinking of? Governments. You know what they're thinking of? Power. Jesus does something radical. Verse 36 again, he took a child, put him in the midst. You're thinking about armies. You're thinking about how, imagine if, if, if you know, and he says, look, whoever receives this kid. Imagine if, if, if you're watching the, the, the Trump uh, team, the, the task force team, given their thing, and then, and then someone, and then Jesus, Trump, or one of them dudes, just grabs a kid. Says, look, we're going to talk about this kid right now. People are like, huh, I think we're here for something important. <laughs> That's what Jesus did. And he goes, want to be great? Start a kid's ministry. (laughs) Welcome children, he actually says. Receive them. Welcome them. Come here, kid. And then he has this great thing. He says, if you welcome children, you welcome me. If you welcome me, you welcome God the Father. If you Somehow, now loving children in Jesus' name means you're receiving Jesus. (laughs) Now, I'm not talking about salvation. You don't get saved by doing kid's ministry. But we're talking about there's some sort of working dynamic for people who are already saved. Where if you will serve the child, you are receiving Jesus and therefore you're receiving the Father. Treat them as if they matter and you will be great, he says. You guys are arguing about who gets to be the prime minister, who gets to be the second in command. If you want to be great, treat these little ones like they matter. The issue, by the way, is not children only here. The issue would have been received by them as these people are seen as socially powerless, So the socially powerless are the doorway to God. To get that? That's the point. The doorway to God is the socially powerless. This doesn't go well. Alexander the Great did not take over the world by doing children's ministry. He, he, He moved great men to do great things, to kill other people in other societies who thought they were great. The Roman Empire did not use a child evangelism strategy to take over the world. You're not going to become a CEO in America by giving a lot of attention to the marginalized people, the children, the homeless. They don't make you CEO for that. No feminist would encourage this. Imagine a feminist saying, women, if you want to be great, take care of children. What what did I say? No, you want to get ahead. It's a man's world. And men ignore the children. You ignore the children. Get out there and show them you can make some money. You want to be great? (laughs) Jesus says, how about you start an orphanage? Care for the lame. Feed the poor? Look, and and I don't mean this as a criticism because it's not. It's just a fact. Trump didn't become president because he ran a soup kitchen. Right? (laughs) That's, That's, and it's not... That isn't a knock on him or, or CEOs. I love CEOs. Got to have a CEO so you can have a corporation. So a corporation can make stuff and that people can get jobs. Right? Got to have CPOs. I value them. <laughs> but what I'm saying is Jesus' understanding of what makes you great is different than ours. You might say, was well, Jesus saying most people aren't important, only the marginal people? Do you have to be in jail or, or crippled or... People aren't crippled today. Whatever you're supposed to be, uh, physically blessed without able to do other... I don't know how you're supposed to say it anymore. You say handicapped. And whatever you're supposed to say. Do you have to be that to be valuable? Do you have to be a child? No, he's not saying only the marginal matter. 
Don't take it that way. Jesus was famous, yes, for loving children, being friends of drunkards, and of hookers, and everybody else. But he also loved Matthew, who was wealthy. He loved Nicodemus, who was wealthy. He loved Joseph of Arimathea, who was wealthy. He loved Lazarus and his sisters, who was wealthy. He loved Mary Magdalene, who was wealthy. Let's take notes so I can move on to the rest of the, so I can land this plane, <laughs> or I'll go on forever. So take this in your notes. Welcoming every single person in the name of Jesus is the goal. Do not think that greatness comes from competing with one another to be the most holy or the most powerful. So in the religious world, I am the most holy, I'm the powerful one. Or in the secular world, (laughs) rather greatness comes by purposely, voluntarily, and intentionally serving other people. If greatness in heaven comes from serving the least, then the greatest is the one who is servant of all. Jesus teaches this is all over the place. He said, for the Son of Man did not come to, to be served, but to serve. Right? The one who was most worthy to receive gave. Okay? So be like him. Three implications, and then we're done. One, everybody matters. Everybody matters. Everybody matters. Simple idea. But it's just, now, I wish everyone can study. No. That was wrong. Everyone can study the scope of history. I wish it were taught from childhood, grade school on, the scope of history. So everyone would realize that the idea that everybody matters is a thoroughly Christian idea. Secularists today who say, we don't need Jesus. The Enlightenment made us good. We understand human rights. No, they don't. There's never been a culture, ever, that understood human rights from Jesus' perspective until Jesus came and salted the earth with the idea. Even today's secularist or atheist in America who thinks you don't need Jesus. I don't need Jesus to be good. Okay, whatever. They don't realize that their own morality was shaped by Jesus, who's shaped the culture. The idea that everybody matters is one this world gets as long as you're not talking about the unborn. But everyone else, they can matter. But it's a Christian idea. The first hospital was... Was, was a Christian, a Christian did it, right? You think, well, of course hospitals. No, not of course hospitals. People used to be, if you could afford a doctor, you bought a doctor. Otherwise, you were on your own. Home remedy, baby, figure it out. Get some essential oils, put that on the broken bone. That's all you had. Now, <laughs> hospitals were the idea of Christians who thought, you know what, everyone who's sick, it might be nice if we took care of them. A guy named Basil, look it up yourself. He was a Christian, and it was many centuries ago. He invented hospitals, orphanages, caring for the elderly. Children would just beg. Society after society, if you're poor and you're an orphan, you go out in the street and you beg and you get abused. That's how you get a living. It was Christians who said, maybe we shouldn't do that. Maybe we shouldn't do child slavery in factories. You know, maybe this is a bad idea. Valuing slaves. By the way, Modern understanding of slavery is so stupid. It is, slavery is not a race-based institution. America wasn't founded to keep the brown person down. All that is just stupid, modern, dumb. I don't know where it comes from. It's just stupid. If you look at the great span of history, slavery is an is a institution from the beginning. From the beginning. Everyone saw slavery as normal. Jesus came along and he started teaching, look, if you're saved and you're a slave, you may be stuck being a slave, but you're still free and your owner is your brother, maybe, right? So he wasn't saying slavery's good, but he did say the slave is as valuable as everybody else. And that would lead to the end of slavery. Did you know how slavery ended worldwide? I'm not talking about uh, human trafficking today, which is another form of slavery, but it's illicit. Most countries outlaw slavery. 
You know who outlawed it? It was 18th century Protestants. <laughs> the same people were accused of founding America to have slavery. Study your history. You just don't know your history. That's all I can say if you believe that. And it's not your fault. You haven't been taught right. <laughs> Go look it up. They're the abolitionists. They're the ones who ended slavery. And the greatest slavers in the world are non-Christians. The number one slave owner, buyer, and seller in the world are Muslims. And they started in the 6th century. And they've, they've just, they're just good at slavery. They still do it today. But Christians, we got rid of it. First we valued the slavery and eventually we were able to wipe it out in the human race. As much as it can be. Valuing women. Divorce laws that protect women. (laughs) Uh, Oh, that's normal. No, that's not normal. It's a Christian idea. And if it wasn't for Christianity, women could just be tossed aside and then they they could be used as second-class citizens. I'm tired of you, woman. You're gone. And if you go to societies that are still not majorly Christian, they can still pull that off. You can, in some places, just, just take your woman out in public, and she's obviously got a burqa on, guess what culture that is, and you can beat her. Some of them, you can put tires around them and set them on fire. <laughs> the idea that we need to protect women is Christian. Christianity spits in the face of social Darwinism. It says, it says, the, the person born with Down syndrome is as valuable as, as, as the scientist with a perfectly working everything. Just as valuable. It says the baby in the womb is just as valuable. Why? Because what we say, what Jesus teaches us, is that people are valuable apart from their utility. These guys are thinking, we want to be great, we want to take over the world. Well, here's a kid. How's a kid going to help us take over the world? He said, the kid is valuable regardless of its utility. Why? Because it's a human being made in the image of God. And God is so valuable that if there's a human, even if the human is a sinner, which we all are, it, it, it has the image of God. No other creature on the earth has that. Therefore, it has, it's sacred in its value, even the worst of sinners. To be a Christian requires you to live your life as if everybody matters. There's no way around it. Color of skin doesn't change it. (laughs) Their sexual habits don't change it. Their poverty, their wealth, their influence. Second implication is we seek a different kind of kingdom. Power in this world comes from gathering influence over influential people. You want power, you've got to be able to influence influencers. You know, you want power. (laughs) Power is the ability to tell the important people what to do. Right? (laughs) If you can influence other people, and in any circle, even among the crooks, (laughs) right? There's the Don Corleone, and then there's the Fredo. Well, Fredo is that, he's that guy on CNN, right? No, no, it's Don Corleone, and Fredo's his kid. But when the bad folks all get together at night, they all call Big Jim boss. You don't mess around with Jim, right? Influence comes from being better than other important people. Often, if you get the most money, this guy uh, who's uh, Elon Musk, the Tesla guy, he's awesome. Why? Because he's got a lot of money. 
By the way, one of the ways he gets a lot of money is because his product, though it uses a lot of fossil fuel to create, um, and then (laughs) it's subsidized by the government. So if you buy its stock, you know the government is going to pay everyone who buys one of those $6,000. So maybe, okay, well then he's awesome because he's smart enough to manipulate the government and use my tax money to make himself rich. But he's great. Why? Because he has money. (laughs) Influence comes from money. Influence comes, you're powerful if you have the most ability to get to bend other people to your will. I say do this and they do it. Watch this. I say do that and they do it. It doesn't come from restraint. Getting the most people to recognize your greatness. The term goat, greatest of all time, is big in sports these days. Everyone wants to be the goat. Everyone knows Tom Brady's the goat. LeBron James is the goat. People are the goat. Most of the time, The people who are great in this world see all the people who are not them as there to serve them. It's just true. They may act like it but otherwise, but that's the truth. If you want to be great in this world, do you want to be great in this world? Can I tell you something? Stay away from Jesus. (laughs) Don't go near Jesus because he's going to mess you up. He's going to... He he might have you sell what you have and lose your power so you can go somewhere and serve people that he's put on your heart. And then you start serving people in need. That's not a worldly powerful position. I'm going to to really serve those in need. You've got to get down there with them. Jesus' kingdom was founded on this earth by a man who never held an office in any government or a club even. He wasn't even the president. There's nothing on his resume like that. I'm the president of the local Lions Club. Right? Nothing. Board of the directors for nothing. He never wrote a song. And obviously the great ones in our world are singers. He, 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 they're American idols. He never wrote a book. He had no clout in the religious government of his day. Zero clout. The Sanhedrin said... No, you don't get to help us make decisions. In fact, we hate you. He obviously had no clout in the Roman government. Look how they treated him. He never even raised an army or a militia. He didn't even buy camo, put beans and bullets in his basement, and get his buddies to come over to learn to shoot just in case. He never built a successful business. (laughs) He never won people over because he had a lot of money. In fact, he wasn't big on having a lot of money himself. He had to go fishing to pay taxes. He didn't have a house. (laughs) And now, which neighborhood you live in makes a difference of how important you are. In our town, and I don't care what our town means to you, there's a neighborhood where you know if you're... Many people go, I'm not going to live there because I can't get there. I can't afford that. And other people go, I do live there, little people. (laughs) Not Jesus. He didn't drive the best chariot. He didn't drive a chariot at all. (laughs) He he took Uber everywhere he went, I guess. I don't know. Rich Mullins, late Rich Mullins, was singing to Jesus. And he said, Birds have nests, foxes have dens, but the the hope of the whole world rests on the shoulders of a homeless man. And he says to Jesus, You had the shoulders of a homeless man, and the world can't stand what it can't own, and it can't own you, because you do not have a home. Homeless people are not that important in boardrooms. Right? 
Well, we need someone on the board who's really influential. Is that Biden guy available? No? Okay. Well, somebody else influential. Who do we can we get? How about this homeless guy in the halls of government? <laughs> if you go to the UN, you know, you want to sit there and have that thing on your head and sit there and take notes all day, you're not a homeless guy. The leaders of Israel and Rome did not give Jesus a place at the table. I need a place at the table to have social justice. No. He didn't even have a place at the table. But the marginal and the powerless called him friend. Jesus' kingdom is so silent, so unassuming, so stealthy, that many think Christianity is weak, ineffective, and on the edge of extinction. In every age, they have said Christianity is about to go extinct. Voltaire famously said, that this is the end of Christianity. Many people have put a stake in the heart of Christianity. Today, people are saying, Christianity's on the way out. Science has shown us as if, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> they don't see the strength of the kingdom of the least. Because when he comes in power, yeah, everyone will know. But the way he comes now is so subversive. Little bands of people here and there throughout history... And whether they, they, they grow heresies and they get slapped down or they get excesses and have to be fixed or whether they have to be reformed, the church somehow makes a way through the ages to just grow and grow and grow and grow. Even when they make mistakes, they think they should run everything and they shouldn't. <laughs> and they, it just grows and grows and grows. Little bands of people obsessed with the idea that a king who suffered and lost really won. <laughs> people who spend too much time worrying about the least. In one sense, the kingdom of Jesus is not threatening to any nation and never has been. You, you, you take a, a criminal, you, you get them to hear and believe about Jesus, and all of a sudden they stop stealing and they start being good citizens and they obey the government in most things, unless they tell them not to do what God says. They obey the government because they're taught that. They pay their taxes now. <laughs> they, they make the neighborhood safer. They're not very threatening. They don't need human power to survive. They don't need armies. But the kingdom of Jesus is threatening to all nations also. Why? Because it's unstoppable. You can't stop us. <laughs> you can't stop us. People, all my life I've heard people say the church is dead. It ain't dead. It ain't dead. You can't stop us by taking our power, by taking our property, or even taking our lives. We're obsessed with waiting for a king who's going to come back. And we appeal to people with humility and love. That's an unstoppable force. Jesus' kingdom right now is in the process of winning. Throughout history, everyone who's been in it is alive with Christ and coming back. Others are not. We're winning. We outnumber everybody. (laughs) We're the biggest club there ever was. Though persecuted... We grow. Just, just if you, uh, no, no one thinks about anything but COVID these days, but in Africa, there, there, there's still some Muslims from the northern part trying to kill the Christians. <laughs> and they're doing it. You can't stop us that way. Unlike the Muslims, 
We don't need government power. Islam is evil, first, because it's fake. Second, because it is a religion that is completely worldly in its power structure. There's nothing heavenly about it. The idea is you come into a culture, you take it over, you put up a mosque, you, you subject all the people in your area to your religious Sharia law, and if they won't convert, you also take their taxes, you take money from them, or even kill them or rape their women, and it's completely worldly. What's different between that and the Roman Empire? It's fragile. But Christians, we don't need that. (laughs) Unlike secularists, we don't need to control the law or the money. We Christians are millions, tens of millions, perhaps hundreds of Asians. China, South Korea, Taiwan, Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam. We are millions of Africa, African, Southern Africa, filled with Christians. Millions of Westerners. Brazil, perhaps one of the most Christian nations in the world. We're sprinkled throughout the earth and we are a subversive force. We're sneaky. We get power by serving the least, loving our enemies, enduring persecution, dying, and proclaiming a fallen king. And saying he's risen. That's sneaky. That's a sneaky way to get power. Seems like you'd want to get a coalition of voters and, and fight the men. We need guns. <laughs> nah. Final implication is the world is upside down. This world is upside down. If what Jesus is saying about that little kid is true, that means the world is not just a little off, it's completely turn the thing over. I want to end by reading from the letter of Paul to the Corinthians. Ready? This is from chapter 1. Where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Aristotle was not a good man. Don't believe it? Not by Christian standards, not by today's standards. He did not believe every person was valuable. The great Aristotelian logic is greater than, you know, Christianity. No, it isn't. And Aristotle didn't win. No knock on him. He was obviously a smart dude. Smarter than me. But the way it works is, according to Paul, if you give me a Down syndrome adult who understands that Jesus loves him, he's wiser than old Aristotle. Because the wisdom of God, through the wisdom of the world, they didn't know God. So it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. We preach folly to them. It's not folly, but they think it is. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Prove to us, say the Jews, that you're really the Messiah. And all the rest say, show us that your way is, is, is better than my way. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Oh, I skipped this part. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. Okay, you want, you want to sign Jews? Jesus died An innocent one, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And like Jonah, he was in the belly, he was dead for three days, and then he rose. That's your sign. They're like, no, 
We can't believe that. We have to be righteous. We say to the Greeks, okay, which is everybody else. Listen, there was a naked man who was really God. We missed it, okay? But he's really God, and when he died, he offered himself a sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. If you believe in him, you'll be saved. And they go, that's stupid. Salvation through a naked man being killed. That's insane. Well, it's foolish to you. It's foolish to you. But it is what we preach. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Some were. But not many. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that human beings might not boast in the presence of God. What's it mean? (laughs) It means, Christian, listen, you're always going to have people write you off as stupid. If you don't believe it, go to college. (laughs) The world, though, is upside down. You know, the world's like, who dies with the most toys wins, right? Yeah, but guess what? You're still dead. (laughs) Enjoy the journey because you only live once. Wrong. You're going to die and you're going to face the judgment. If I can be the most powerful one, I'll be happy. No, you won't. You'll make a god of yourself. Sin will enslave you. And then you'll face a righteous judge. If you want to turn things right... (laughs) It's simple. Remember this simple idea. God made the world and he's in charge. He sent Jesus the king and he's different than us to save us. If he had come in power like you expect, he'd have killed us all for being sinners. Wasn't his plan. It was his plan to become weak and serve us so that he could save us. He will come in power once he's mercifully given you the chance to be saved and it's your chance right now. So if you're tired If you're tired of living in the way the world is, do you know what I say to you on behalf of me? A sinner saved by God's goodness and all the other Christians, come and join us. Come on. Leave that system. Leave the world. This is like leaving the Titanic uh, to get on, um, what's your dream place? I was going to say mine, but maybe it's not yours. Hawaii, maybe. You're leaving the Titanic and you step right into Hawaii. (laughs) You're leaving the Titanic and you're in the mountains. Leaving the Titanic. Leave the world. Come to the one who is gentle and humble of heart. Take his yoke upon you. Let's pray. I want to pray for you and I want you to pray too. Pray to God this. Father, I see that you, who are the greatest, sent your son who became the least and my servant, And I was not worthy. Go ahead and pray that to him. I is not worthy. But Jesus, you came to serve me. And though I have sins, you had none. Pray that to him. You had none and you died on a cross to pay for mine. And now my sins are washed away. But I have nothing. But then you rose from the dead. And you gave me the life of resurrection that you have. And I look forward to you coming again. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. 
For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.